0: Hello and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. My name is Chris Thomas and I look after The Quest, our open innovation programme that's on a never-ending pursuit for progress. As part of this, I've been speaking with a number of internal and external experts to explore where the industry should be headed. We want to share our findings and are publishing them in this podcast. The series explores a number of different themes and today's theme is water treatment. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to produce the best possible water. We explore the challenges and innovations in this technical area, and one of the biggest issues emerging, that of plastic pollution. Our love of plastic and its indestructible nature has led to its discovery in some of the most unexpected places. At the bottom of the ocean, within Arctic ice, inside animals, even floating in orbit as redundant space junk. It's an area of increasing importance for the water industry, particularly when considering microplastics that can enter the waterways This is leading people to ask questions like should we begin to regulate for this to start i speak with rob luckwell on the process of water treatment i then speak with Natalie fee on plastic pollution rob is a water quality scientist and after 15 years on the job is an expert in treatment process operation and optimization he has a passion for customer engagement and educating on the value of water in fact one of his recent accolades Rob was awarded an Outstanding Business Advocate Award by the Lord Mayor of Bristol for services to the local communities. Natalie is an award-winning environmentalist, author, speaker and co-founder of City to Sea, a UK-based organisation running campaigns to stop plastic pollution at source. In 2018, Natalie was listed as one of the UK's 50 new radicals by The Observer and in the same year, the University of the West of England awarded her the honorary degree of Doctor of Science in recognition of her campaign work. She won the Sheila McKechnie Award for Environmental Justice in 2017 for City to Seas, hashtag Switch the Stick campaign, and is proud to have been named Bristol's 24 7s Woman of the Year for 2018. Her book, How to Save the World for Free, is due out in October 2019, and she can be found on Instagram as Natalie Fee underscore, and on Twitter as NatalieFee. Water quality is an expansive area, and we cover many thought-provoking topics in today's conversations. I hope you enjoy listening.
1: Rob, thanks for joining me today. Hello, good morning, Chris. Can you explain where we're stood? In a beautiful spot? Look at that, we've got swans over there. This is a bit of an origin story. This is one of the oldest reservoirs we have at Bristol Water. So if you can look out right to the far end, you can see a waterfall coming in. This is something called the Line of Works. This was the original source that was being brought in from the Mendips all the way to Barrow-Gurney, which is where we are now, just down from the airport. This reservoir was built in 1852. So not long after Bristol Water's conception in 1846. So it's it's a beautiful spot and the sun is shining.
0: And it's still here today. We're still using it. Indeed. So for those who aren't so close to the topic, can you provide a brief overview of what's involved
1: in treating the water that we drink? What does that process look like? Bristol Water operate a whole series of different treatment works and it all depends on what type of water is actually coming in. So, for instance, here at Barrow Gurney, we've got problems with algae in the water. We have some problems with metals, sometimes with sediment and the colour of the water. And the treatment process here at Barrow is is multi-stage. We combine chemicals and filters and we need to disinfect the water before it goes out the door to the customers. It's very highly sophisticated and the treatment technology that we're using now is state-of-the-art. And if we then have to manage it at the source, what, what other issues are we, are we managing post that? So if you look just out here, we can see these little green boys, And these are aerators. So we, we are bubbling the water up. This stops the, the reservoir from what we call stratifying. This helps to keep the algae down.
0: Great. Right. Okay. So as we manage water quality, there's a, there's a number of steps. There's everything you've just described around looking after our raw water quality sources. Yeah. Then there's actually treating that water up to a potable standard and then getting it down the pipes to our taps. And we've got to, we've got to control the water quality all the way along that journey. If we, if we go in reverse and, and think of the taps first, that's the area that most of us are familiar with. Yeah. What are the sort of challenges we face in managing water quality at that part of the, the chain? Yeah. And, and what innovations are out there that are,
1: are lending solutions to that? The biggest issues currently facing the water companies all over the country is the legacy of cast iron pipework. As cast iron erodes, corrodes gradually from the inside, so you get lots of rust and accumulating in the pipes. Now, we can either replace these sections of pipework or we can flush the pipework to stop all those bits coming through into customer properties. Now, what you can do, and what Bristol Water are actively doing now, is to put in monitors actually in the pipes, which can tell you the amount of iron that's present, the amount of sediment. It monitors for discoloration, and that can inform our operations room, and can inform network staff and water quality staff, so we can take action. I think the the next step really is automation. Once you can start looking live at your network, you can start to predict or proactively manage incoming quality problems. It may be that you could change the direction of the water or that you could open a washout and discharge that water so it doesn't get carried through to customer properties. This whole automation of network, this is the big story. And this is what we're going to be putting money, time, enthusiasm and innovation into. Great. And if
0: we step back further still, and we're doing this reverse journey, so we've done the transporting it to the tap, and we go to the treatment process itself, what are the issues there and the innovations there?
1: The big one is always disinfection. It's probably the most important stage of drinking water treatment. And once you've removed all of the bits from your filters, really the the key is to ensure that there are no harmful bugs in the water. At Barrow, one of the big ones of last year was to install the UV plant, so ultraviolet disinfection. I mean, this is this is brilliant, you can shine lights into water and you're, you're making the water bacteriologically pure. If the lights are on and shining brightly, then the water quality scientists at Bristol Water and the production staff can sleep easy in their beds at night. We've now got ultraviolet treatment at six of our major treatment works. And looking forward, the technology for LED UV is still in its infancy at the moment, but certainly something that Bristol Water hopefully will look to embrace the cost savings on power and the cost of installation will be significantly reduced. Um, we're talking a fraction of the cost.
0: I think it's quite an interesting area. I'm always amazed when I see the impact on the sites that the, the UV treatment has had because the, the, the footprint, the geographical footprint has just shrunk considerably compared to the, uh, the alternative processes of sand filtering. And I think that footprint in terms of energy spend will shrink by the same magnitude if we can move to LED technology,
1: which would be great. Absolutely.
0: I know one of the other challenges and actually thinking on the same issue of, of managing the energy involved with treating water, we've been exploring how we can minimize invasive species that can clog pumps and, and the pressures there. What's the innovations we've been exploring there lately?
1: One of the big ones we currently have in place at our northern treatment works, Purton. this is the big one that supplies uh, almost half of our entire supply for Bristol, is the invasive species known as the zebra mussel. Now, apparently this one came from the Aral Sea, and has made its way into the Sharpness to Gloucester Canal. The problem with zebra mussels—they um, they sound innocent enough—but actually, over over time, if these things are allowed to grow, then they can crust up on the inside of pipeworks, the inside of structures. Anything mechanical will start to perish and become a real problem. Our strategy up until this point has been to use chlorine, dosing chlorine into the raw water. Chlorine in itself can have other side effects that we don't want, disinfection byproducts that we then have to remove. It's costly and it's, it's not particularly environmentally friendly either. One solution we're now looking at is uh, in collaboration with Cambridge University is uh, something called the BioBullet. Now this is a product that we can, instead of dosing chlorine for six months of the year, we can use the BioBullet just for three days. You dose it at the treatment works and it Almost smothers the zebra mussels that are stuck onto the sides of the structures and kills them off, and then they fall off, and then they're taken out during the filtration stage. In terms of innovation for Bristol Water, this is—it's an, an incredible step forward, huge cost savings potentially and certainly much more selective on the things that it will kill, so much more environmentally sustainable. Yeah, much nicer than chlorine. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So stepping back in the, in the process again and coming on to managing our raw water sources, what are the some of the challenges we face? we stood next to one today.
1: Algae, whenever you have surface water, algae is certainly the, the big problem for most water companies in the UK. We get nutrients being lifted up from the sediment in the bottom of the reservoir. This is feeding the algae and, particularly in the summertime, uh, all the algae come out to play when it's nice and sunny. And that water, that algae-laden water is then carried through into the treatment process. It can block up filters, it causes strain and pressure on the treatment works, and can also lead to taste and odour problems as well. As all these algae cells die, so they can release some quite unpleasant tastes, which we certainly don't want our customers to be noticing. Some solutions to manage algae, and there's a whole area of innovation that's going on at the moment, but one of the ones that we're looking at is the ultrasonic devices. So these are um, small setups that you can place into the reservoir, which emit a pulse into, into the water, and they either disrupt the algae, so that they don't like floating to the surface if this kind of sound barrier is there, or if the pulse is intense enough, it can actually burst the cell of the algae. So they, they perish and then they fall to the bottom of the reservoir. Uh, so this is an exciting one. And we've had in Cheddar Reservoir, we have had a, an ultrasonic instrument for, since 2017. Uh, the results thus far have been mixed, um, but we are persisting. And hopefully in time, we should get some, some good benefits from it.
0: Great. I think it's fascinating. I think it's the same or based on the same technology of the reversing car sensors. So it's quite a, a unique, different application for it. And what about if we, we can, I think, go further upstream still into how we manage chemicals that run off into our raw water sources? What, what do we need to do there in terms of
1: managing the, the quality? The word of the day is catchment management. This more holistic approach to managing water quality. Treatment processes in the past have always been the ones to remove the problems from the water as it goes through the treatment stage. Actually, if you take a step back and you start to look at things in the catchment, the surroundings, this is by far the best approach. You're working with farmers to look at what they're putting on their fields. You're looking at industry, you're looking at landowners. You need to understand all of the risks to your supply by having a clear view of everything that is going on around that source, around the reservoir, around that river. In the, the northern area, northern part of our company area, up in Purton, where we have the Sharpness Gloucester Canal, we have uh, something called the Metaldehyde Action Project, which has currently been in place since about 2007, when we first picked up something called metaldehyde. This uh, metaldehyde is the active ingredient in the, the small green slug pellets that your granny will put on the marigolds uh, to keep the slugs away. Now, the farmers are using these small green pellets in abundance on their fields. And because they're so hardy, these little pellets, they don't degrade readily in water. And metaldehyde is being carried through from the raw water into the treatment process. And it's very difficult and very costly to remove. Since Bristol Water, uh, we have the dubious accolade of, of identifying metaldehyde For the first time out of all the companies. Since then all the companies started looking for it and actually many of them have been finding this and finding this substance higher than what we have here. Anglian water for instance, very high levels. You think about the geography of the area around Peterborough and the low-lying countries. To manage metaldehyde, we've actually taken a step to pay for an alternative product for the farmers. This is a very winning hearts and minds type of project to ask a farmer to change the chemical that they're putting onto the ground, this protects their livelihood, and we're asking them to try something else instead. Now, we have to get them on board if we want this to be successful. So we have been paying for an alternative slug pellet, um, a ferric-based substance, much more environmentally friendly, and it's taken many years for the farmers to grow in confidence, but we're now at that point where metaldehyde is no longer being used in the farms that we are engaging with in the catchment that the cost involved is is huge savings and it's so much better for the environment and it's great collaboration between bristol water and all the landowners in that catchment area so a, a real success story and i think finally to since it was identified and since the work that we've been doing an act has now been passed to look at a phase ban of metaldehyde since december 2018 So hopefully in 2020, we should no longer see metaldehyde coming through into our treatment works.
0: That's great, Rob. Thanks very much. It really shows that the best way to tackle any problem is always to go right back to the source. And catchment management is certainly the way to do that for the water industry. One of the big questions being explored today is whether plastic is becoming the next metaldehyde. And it's an interesting one because it's not just linked to specialist users, as was the case with metaldehyde and farmers. It's something we're all involved in. We're now going to hear from Natalie Fee, the founder of City to Sea, to find out how we can tackle this emerging issue of plastic pollution, both as individuals and as companies. Natalie, thanks very much for joining me. Very welcome. Today, we're exploring where the industry is moving when it comes to managing the environment that water comes from and how we treat that water. It's an area that has seen all sorts of development, but one that Not many will know about because it's quite a scientific domain. There's lots of chemistry and lots of biology going on. However, one topic that most people will be familiar with is that of plastic contamination in our aquatic environments, particularly microplastics. And the issue is now on political agendas. There's growing academic research around it. Regulation is emerging and technology solutions are being sought. So there's all sorts of forces that are coming together and these will really influence and support the water industry in its role around stewarding those water resources. Before we dive into all those different areas at play there can you help us to understand a little bit of the scale of the issue just how much plastic's out there and, and what's the impact that it's actually having
2: sure i mean in terms of our oceans the bristol-based consultancy you put together a really good study which showed that we've got around 12.2 million tons of plastic making its way into our oceans every year which when you break that down no pun intended, um, actually ends up being about 9 million tonnes coming from land. And then again, looking at that, you've got about a million tonnes of that nine, which is microplastics. So I think someone has put that into, it's like the equivalent of a, a dumper truck full of rubbish every minute or something going into the oceans, which is pretty horrific. And wherever you go in the world, and if you're near water, you will find plastic especially if you have a microscope. (laughs) so You might be somewhere where you think it's really pristine, but plastic's now been found in the most remote waters of the Arctic. It's been found deep in the, the Mariana Trench. It really is everywhere. I mean, plastic is in the air we breathe. It's in the rain now. There was even a study recently that showed it's in our poo, so it, it literally is everywhere. Unfortunately, and and you know, from the very visible stuff on riverbanks and and sort of corners of waterways, and the shoreline to the very invisible.
0: It's uh, it's quite a terrifying thought. It really has has got absolutely everywhere. And when we think about plastic and microplastic, what do we mean as the difference there? How do we go from plastic to microplastic? And yeah, what's the different kind of impact that that microplastic has compared to Normal plastic. Yeah,
2: and it's, and it's good, to, good to be aware of the differences. I mean, plastic is the material, you know, is the, the type of polymers. And we have plastic in obviously our packaging, you know, everything from our cars, our phones, our laptops, those sort of things are obviously made of plastic. However, the single use plastic is the problem. That's the stuff that we're seeing as litter that's ending up in our seas. I mean, it's obviously not just single use plastic because we see in terms of microplastics the microfibers from our clothes that shed when we wash our clothes and pass into our water systems. So in terms of the process of it actually turning into microplastics, we've got these, you know, what you call bigger plastics. So it could be your plastic bottle or it could be a crisp wrapper. And eventually they will break down into smaller and smaller pieces. They will fragment through the light, through the salt water, through the action of the waves. All these things will start to break the plastic down And at that point, it will, when it gets to, I think it's under five millimetres, I think, is how big it it qualifies as a microplastic. So when it's under that size, it it will be a microplastic. Some microplastics exist already at that stage. Obviously, we've had the microbead ban here in the UK, but there's still a lot of plastics in our products, in our our wash-off, rinse-off products, in our cleaning products. We've got tiny little microplastics in those still. So, yeah, so that's the difference. Plastic doesn't ever go away. It just breaks down into smaller and smaller particles.
0: And as it breaks down and just remains there and seemingly infiltrates every, everywhere, there's no privacy when it comes to plastic, <laughs> it seems. Are we in danger a little bit like climate change where... We know more and more about it and seemingly it's a bigger and bigger issue, but we are almost too late to the party. We haven't taken action on it and we, we get to this slightly scary space where we might have gone too far, so we might not be able to repair the damage that's been done. Is is that a, a situation that's realistic with plastic or is it something that's still being explored?
2: I mean, I think there is a lot happening to reduce the the escape of plastic to stop the escape of plastic into our waterways it is definitely being addressed around the world on a huge scale but it's it's slow and obviously it's not happening fast enough in terms of the the speed at which the plastic is leaking into the environment but i mean it is hopeful in that there's a lot happening the seas will Pretty much clean themselves if we can stop it from getting into the oceans then with storms and currents that the, the seas will kind of eject a lot of the plastic onto the beaches so actually by having really strong community worldwide beach cleans we can actually really start to reduce the amount of plastic that's in the ocean as long as we really turn off the tap and stop it getting there in the first place but what's concerning with the, the bigger picture around plastics is that currently in the U.S. Around 200 billion dollars are being invested in new shale gas or fracking infrastructure to supply feedstock to the plastic industry. So, as we see the world's dependency on oil lower when it comes to energy and cars, because we're switching more to renewables, the oil industry is naturally looking for its next big, you know, money making scheme. And it's like, yeah, plastic, yeah, we can just pump it all into plastic. So, that's essentially what's happening. They are assuming that we consumers and and millennials and developing countries are going to want more and more plastic. So if that happens, plastic share of global oil use is set to triple by 2050. Uh, It's currently at about 8%. And so that's looking like that's going to triple, which is going to increase greenhouse gas emissions from petrochemicals by 30%, which is predicted to double plastic pollution in our oceans. So we've got a big fight ahead of us.
0: A big scary numbers aren't they and, and it's always amazing to see how so many of these issues particularly around our, our planet are complex and related to one another nothing sort of decoupled so you know plastic is linked to climate change well, and greenhouse gases and I, yeah all, all absolutely goes around.
2: i mean i think anything that is is a, a fossil fuel you know it, it's all within the same issue at the moment is that we need to be doing everything we can to keep fossil fuels in the ground and not extract them
0: and so if we if we think about trying to do what you were saying there and and turn the tap off, stop plastic entering in the environment. I guess there's a number of ways we might start to approach that. Regulation is one of them. And as a water company, I can see how that would be quite important, both in just defining some terms and some understanding that we can all use. You know, how how small is microplastic? What's included? What types of plastic are included? But also in, in terms of where we should look to see the right kind of regulation. So, there's, there's microplastics in our water at the moment and can see that we should therefore perhaps regulate what's allowed in that water environment and see if we can remove that. But of course, as you were just saying, the journey for plastic really starts far, far upstream of that, well beyond it, and, and there's regulation around you know manufacturing and waste disposal. Where do you see is the sort of most effective route we could go with regulating how we control the plastic that, that enters the environment?
2: Well, I think... First off, I mean, looking at the larger plastics around, especially around plastic bottles and bottle tops or bottle caps, they're the number one item found in rivers around Europe. They're in the top 10 items found on beaches around the world. And it's been clearly demonstrated in Norway and other countries that a deposit scheme whereby you get some money back when you take your bottle back to the store drastically reduces plastic pollution from plastic bottles so it gets litter rates down to pretty much zero in those countries because it's assigned a value to that plastic so it's actually valuable for people to take that back so you don't see them on you know in rivers or in 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 bushes or in in streets in cities so a deposit scheme is clearly the path that we need to take the other benefit to a deposit scheme is it increases the the value of the plastic in the UK through the quality of the recyclate, so the actual quality of the plastic that we have in the UK, which means we don't have to export it to countries that don't want our sort of dirty plastic waste. So a deposit scheme, I would say, is very much the thing that we would like to see the government introduce, and they're in an endless cycle of consultations at the moment, which is hugely frustrating when we know that they work. Extending that, so actually adding a tax onto plastics as well, so a a plastic tax on packaging, coffee cups, those sort of single-use takeaway items. Again, if they had a a charge attached to them, behavior change studies have shown, like we've seen with the plastic bag charge, we're now using 85% less plastic bags than we used to because of the 5p bag charge. And then looking at the smaller microplastics, again, really the law needs to that the ban needs to be extended to the smaller microplastics as well that are still in rinse off cosmetics and cleaning products and sun creams. You know, we've got really small microplastics in those, and they too should be banned.
1: Mm.
0: And I guess if that's the, the the sort of the macro level of of dealing with with plastic at at, at scale. What, what is it that we can do as individuals to minimise how plastic enters the environment and, and control that at, at the sphere of our our own influence? Yeah,
2: I think that's the exciting bit. Really, is people can, you know, think, well, what's the point? You know, what can I do? But we could, we've seen what difference it makes when one person refuses a straw, and you know, they set off this this chain reaction of their friends doing it, their family doing it, and it has become an incredible, powerful movement. And that is what is challenging the petrochemical industry's assumption that we're going to want more and more plastic actually individual action by refusing single use is is really challenging those and and making investors uncertain whether they should invest in the plastics infrastructure which is exactly what we want so i'd say never underestimate your power as a citizen as a consumer of where you spend your money and how that can change things and have a ripple effect so Cutting back on plastic, switching your toothbrush to a bamboo toothbrush, because toothbrushes are notoriously impossible to recycle, lobbying people like Colgate to make sure that their products are recyclable and that they have drop off points in every store, not just in some stores around the country. Your bathroom's a really good place to switch. So you can have a, a metal razor instead of disposable razors. You can have homemade, really simple to make uh, toothpaste or buy little toothy tabs instead of, you know, your unrecyclable plastic tubes of toothpaste, which are often still full of tiny microplastics. Switching to a shampoo bar. So there's, there's a lot that we can do. And the bathroom is quite an easy space to get yourself plastic-free for people with periods, we've also got so many reusable menstrual products now, which is a speciality of ours at City to see. obviously encouraging people not to flush plastics down the loo. And obviously, pa- menstrual products is a huge source of that.
0: We're kind of speaking at two ends of the spectrum there. We've got sort of big, big top down change with regulation. And we've got all the sort of changes we can make as, as individuals. And across that, it, it represents, I guess, an interesting challenge for water companies in that much like our catchment management activities for other chemicals that we don't want entering the water system. And we have to learn how to engage with companies and individuals and ensure that they care about this issue and that they can work with us to reduce it. Is there anywhere that you think would have a a real um, strong impact in that spectrum around you can regulate, you can lobby manufacturers, you can work as individuals? Is there one area that's really having more effect than others? or, Or is it sort of a portfolio where we should pursue everything at this point?
2: It's definitely, a, all approaches are working at the moment. I think that the continuing pressure on the government is a key area. Um, You know, making sure your MPs are really on board and keeping that pressure up, I'd say, is key because obviously that can solve so many of the problems, but it's slow and we know that they're not very responsive and we know they've been distracted with Brexit. So really really focusing on the individual actions and the supermarkets are a brilliant place to focus our laser beam of attention because they want our money they want our custom so seeing like waitrose introduce the refill stations now with with loose food it's something we've been talking to them about for years so it's really fantastic to see them being the first to trial this and and that's because of our you know consumer demand so they are responding to that so You know, Morrison's taking their fruit and veg plastic free. Iceland have got some great commitments as well. So that is really where we do have a lot of agency.
0: And as you go about trying to promote these changes, what are the biggest barriers you're you're seeing that really need to be overcome at this point?
2: I'd say it's still the supermarkets. You know, I had a particularly busy week and weekend. And, you know, living with less plastic, you do need a bit more time because you need to go to certain shops that have, you know, your loose, you know, fish and meat you know or maybe loose cheese or go to the sort of zero waste shops to refill your, you know your, your your dried products and this weekend I didn't have time to do that I had to go and do a supermarket shop and it's just horrifying it's horrifying the amount of plastic that you have to you know you're subjected to so I think it really is you know they are holding things up a lot for us obviously food waste is a big issue and we don't want to you know make one problem better and another worse but there's a lot of a lot of ways around it so i'd say um yeah still back in supermarkets
0: and is there something that those who might sit on the investment side be able to do around around this you know ethical investment is is not just a nice thing to do anymore it it seems to work for for those investing they seem to get good returns and you mentioned earlier that some of them are getting a little bit nervous around whether the projections for the size of the plastic market is going to be as big as the oil industry would like it to be. Is there anything in terms of where investment can be focused that can really make a dent on this plastic issue?
2: Yeah, I'm, well, personally and naively and perhaps optimistically, I think that we should be divesting from the plastic um, companies as well, the plastic producers and the petrochemical industries. I think anyone who's still, their business model is still focused on extracting fossil fuels from the ground should should be excluded from investment portfolios. That said, I know that there's a lot of good work happening in ESG and people really being able to have use their shareholder vote at AGMs for those companies. I know we're working with an organization called Rubico, who have just embarked on a three-year engagement strategy with some of the big polluters. And we're optimistic that there will be some big changes that come as a result of that you know these companies aren't just going to go away overnight so i think if you are staying in on those investments then you need to be a responsible investor and really you know use that power that you have if that doesn't sit well with you then i think there's so many other amazing things to invest in and yes they may not bring as solid a return but ultimately you know we're we're talking about our future so Who needs a really strong return for no future (laughs) or or a slightly smaller return for a future? I think it's an an easy choice.
0: So if we change tack a little bit, because I guess a lot of what we're exploring there is on the behavioral side in terms of what we choose to buy, what we choose to invest in, where regulation might incentivize people to move their behaviors towards. What about the sort of the technology side? Are there any nice solutions that you're seeing that's going to change the face of what's available to us in terms of helping us to avoid plastic or, or live with it in a, in a more sustainable fashion?
2: I mean, I'll go back to the Waitrose example. I think in terms of there being refill stations, so you can buy loose products in supermarkets. Some of the other technology that's really exciting, I think, is within the, the garment industry. They're actually looking at how to redesign the Sort of polyester and nylon threads, so that they don't shed when we wash them, which would obviously then have a, a positive impact on the amount of microfibers that are getting released. I mean, microfibers are the third biggest source of plastic pollution in our oceans. So, washing machine companies as well are looking at improving filters and and how we can how we can do that. Just don't empty the filter into the sink and wash it <laughs> wash it down the sink. And there's also things like you know interesting mushroom developments and spores that can eat plastic and i think those kind of things are really fascinating and and ultimately at some point i'm sure we'll see some viable bioplastics the stuff made from algae and and seaweed i think are the most interesting sources of that because obviously it's not dependent on fresh water as we know we're going to be facing increasing water shortages and we don't i don't think we should be using our water to grow single-use packaging i think naturally as as a human race we want there to be a quick fix we want there to be some magic thing that's going to come along and solve the problem for us the problem is consumerism the problem is convenience culture that we want everything on demand we want it cheaply and sadly that means that a lot of packaging is is needed so it does really involve us changing our behaviors which is you know It's not a nice clean, like, oh, yeah, there's this, you know, I mean, even like the ocean cleanup, for example, there's sort of the, you know, millions, even billions spent on a piece of kit to go out to sea to try and clean up the ocean. Well, only 1% of ocean plastics are on the surface we spoke earlier about beach cleans you know five percent on the beaches so and the sea will clean itself so it's a lot easier a lot cheaper a lot more community focused to focus on beach cleans rather than this amazing piece of technology which may or may not scoop up plastic from one percent of the ocean surface or rather you know the one percent of plastic on the surface so i think what's interesting what's most exciting is the the refill and reuse models that are being trialed we're extending refill to beyond tap water to be refill more. So looking at incentivizing coffee cup refills, lunchbox refills, household products. Because I think really, you know, we do need to be looking at our own habits and we need to be supported on that through the supermarkets and and through the government as well.
0: Mm, yes, definitely. I think um, we're, we're really proud to be one of the, the early supporters of City to Sea with the, the refill campaign. And, and it's wonderful to see how, the whole water industry has got behind it it's got real national sway thinking on the role that the water companies could continue to play in that space and as refill expands and things what more would you hope that we might be able to do on it where do you think we should head next
2: I think I mean it's been amazing to have the support of Water UK and then of the sort of the early adopters like Bristol Water and really to see how that has supported refill and and we've now got over 200 local schemes across the UK and communities but I think there's a lot more that could be done in terms of really embedding refill in the company culture, really in the in the CSR of the water companies, in the business operations, the the team on the ground, so the communications as well because studies have shown that around eighty five percent of people want to do something about plastic pollution and I think there's a lot more that the water companies can do to really mobilise that passion and to give people things that they can do in their community through refill through expanding that to refill more and also around unflushables, like there's an incredible opportunity to still really engage on plastics and i think there's a lot more that that water companies could be doing with that
0: do you have a view on why at the minute when we think of the unflushables and there's the 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 new water research center standard around what 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 could be flushed and what really isn't flushable do you have a view on why people aren't adopting it as much as they had initially hoped with it because a lot of this can help with the plastic problem in terms of how some of those materials break down in the in the sewers and, and enter the environment.
2: You're referring to the fine to flush logo. Yes. Yeah. Well I think it's a little bit confusing. I think for a long time the water industry's been talking about the three Ps and I think that was just starting to gain traction. And I think people were really starting to understand that okay, it's just those products that go down the loo and, and a lot of more could have been done around that. I think introducing a fine to flush logo is a good step, but still those products that we're putting down the toilet, even the ones that are, say, regenerated cellulose, we don't really know what the impact of that's going to be on the marine environment. But it's a great move. And I I think the industry, sort of Adana and other industry um, bodies around wet wipes, are, you know, gonna be slow to adopt that for you know multiple reasons around you know, the economy, the economics of it. But yeah, I think ultimately giving people a really clear message that the only thing that goes down the loo is pee, paper and poo is easier for people to understand than some wipes can, some wipes can't. You know, we know that generally people don't pay much attention to the packaging. So, you know, that education in schools is is a really great time to get kids on board with it and they go home and they educate their parents and they can inspire them to get a bin in their bathroom. and. So, yeah, I think education would still be a great a great place to focus on.
0: And so if listeners want to find out a bit more about how they can help the work of city to sea where should they go? How can they find out how to get involved?
2: So they can get in touch through our website city We've got a free plastic-free journal that goes out every month full of tips on how you can live with less plastic and campaigns around the world as well. So... That's really good value. We've got loads of videos that you can share on social media, especially focused around Unflushables. We've got some fun ones on on our Facebook page. So yeah, get in touch on social or through the website. There's also refill.org.uk. So download the refill app, see where you can refill, pledge to never use a plastic bottled water ever again, you know, unless you're really caught short. Uh, So the refill app just shows you where you can refill and uh, you can add refill stations to that as well. So Yeah, find us on social media. I've also got a book coming out later this year in October called How to Save the World for Free, which does have a a good section devoted to water in that as well. So that's going to be up through Lawrence King Publishing, but you can pre-order that on Amazon or FOILs at the moment.
0: Right. Now, as a a podcast on innovation, we've got lots of predictions from the experts as we've gone along. And as a bit of fun, I've been asking people what their their next big flop is going to be, but that doesn't feel quite the right spirit for preventing plastic (laughs) pollution. It's very much worth encouraging all ideas at this point. So perhaps we can bend it a little bit. And I was going to ask, what's the single worst thing we're doing at the minute that's causing plastic pollution? What's that one thing we could stop?
2: I think the worst thing that we're doing is not having a deposit scheme. Like it would solve a big chunk of the problem. So I'm just going to go with that. I think, you know, the fact that our government is tied itself up in knots around consultations and is being influenced by industry lobbyists to, to push back against the deposit scheme is a key problem. So, yeah, I think pushing forward on that would be the next big win.
0: Natalie, thank you. There's uh, some great challenges for us to try and rise to there. So uh, good luck to everybody. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on our Innovation Quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at
2: bristolwater.co.uk.